Hello, welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us again for another show, even though we're in virtual reality. Uh, now, there has been an upside to the virtual reality. We've gotten to see where Glenn is every week, and Glenn is in another marvelous location. He was, you know, you know, in France last week, and uh, now uh, he appears to be in Norway. But uh, it, it, we'll let you tell us where you are in a minute, Glenn. But anyway, it, it, that's one of the nice things about this. And, by, and, and, and also, because we've been uh, doing these shows uh, you know, at a distance through Zoom, we've been able to record them, the visual element, and we've been posting uh, the shows, uh, the recordings of the shows, the visual stuff on our Facebook page at the Theology Podcast. And then we've done, uh, you, know, uh, you know, the shows where we've posted the shows over on YouTube. We've got a YouTube channel now. And that, that YouTube channel is, again, Theology Podcast. So if you would like to see what we look like, if you've only been able to listen, uh, now you'll be able to see our smiling faces if you go to one of those locations. But anyway, uh, Tom, why don't you introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Tom Price, a systematic theologian and Christian ethicist teaching both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And Glenn? And I am Glenn Sunshine. I'm professor of history at Central Connecticut State University and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And uh, where I am right now is in Mystic Seaport in Connecticut uh, during Viking days. And <laughs> <laughs> That's what they called it, and that is actually a uh, reproduction of a Royal Viking longship that was built in Norway and sailed across the Atlantic uh, under sail power. Wow. wow. So it, it actually does come from Norway, so I wasn't completely off. Yep. Now, j just as a quick side note, since these things had square sails, they couldn't tack into the wind, so they could only go with the wind behind them unless they were powered by oars. The problem is the winds in the Atlantic tend to go west to east. So the question is, how do you sail across the Atlantic from Norway? The answer is hurricanes. <laughs> <laughs> because they go cyclonic, and if you ride the north edge of them, it actually gives you a wind going east to west. So that's actually how they sailed the sucker across the Atlantic. <laughs> we can't wait till we catch that hurricane so we can... <laughs> Hurricanes, uh, North Atlantic storms, anything that goes cyclonic, you can use it. <laughs> well, that's, that's pretty cool. And, and I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm the senior pastor of the Presbyterian Church in Manchester, Connecticut. And I've written a number of things. My latest book is entitled Household and the War for the Cosmos. And I'm working on a book right now on Tom Bombadil. And that ho I hope that's going to be out at the end of the summer. But uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a member, I'm, um, and I've never mentioned this before. Maybe I have, but I don't think I've mentioned it as I've introduced myself. But I'm a member of the Academy of Philosophy and Letters. And today we have a guest on the show who's a fellow member, Brian Patrick Mitchell, who's with us. Hi, Brian. It's great to have you. Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, we, when I saw what you uh, had uh, written about with your thesis for your PhD, I thought, that's right up our alley. We got to have Brian on the show. So, Brian, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, uh, tell us maybe a little bit about your, your new PhD? I mean, it, oh, sure. Sure, yeah. Um, I, I'm a writer. In fact, I've just retired uh, from the government, federal government, uh, uh, as a speech writer for the last decade or so. Before that, I was a journalist for many years. Before that, I was in the Army. 
And uh, so those are those are my two childhood ambitions, being a soldier and a writer, and I've, I've done all that. And now I'm just devoting myself mainly to serving at the church and then also writing theologically. And I just finished um, a PhD, and before that, uh, a master's of theology, mainly so that I could uh, actually get some things published. You have to have the credentials to publish, and uh, I didn't have them, and uh, now now I do. So, um, uh, of course, you know, I have written several books, uh, several on gender issues, um, uh, one survey of early Christian teaching on, on the male and female, which I'll be using, which I did use for the PhD. Um, also a book on political theory, Eight Ways to Run the Country, published in 2006. Uh, and also written a novel, which I think is very good, and some people agree with me, actually. But uh, <laughs> I'm in the process of revising that a little bit. So anyway. Well, that's great stuff. Now, to give our, our listening audience a little bit of background, you know, the three of us, we're kind of in the Reformed world. But you're you're in Orthodoxy, and which right. branch of Orthodoxy are you in? Uh, Russian Orthodoxy, yeah. It's all, in a sense, the same church. There are different styles of music, mainly, and we do have report to different bishops in that. Although we're currently undergoing a, a sort of continental drift between the progressive and the traditional wings of that. I'm in the more traditional side, yeah, and uh, we expect to see some um, big, big things happening, unfortunate things happening in the church in the next few years. You know, that's really kind of a shock to those of us who are looking from the outside, because if there's any group that we had hopes would be able to sort of never have to go through this, it was you guys. Well, I wouldn't give up hope because uh, you know, most of the uh, half of the Orthodox world is under Russia, under Moscow. Uh, and that's the more conservative half. Um, uh, they, they have their own pressures, but they a lot of them see what's happening elsewhere and Russians generally, they see what's happening politically in the West, and, and they've had their experience of communism, totalitarianism, and a lot of them are smart enough to realize that we don't want to go there again. Right. Uh, and so we're hopeful, and I'm very glad to be where I'm at now because I have very good bishops and very good priests to work with, all men of sincere faith, uh, and I'm not too worried. Um, you know, whatever happens after I'm gone, uh, I'm not going to worry about it. And while I'm around, uh, I'm, I'm pretty, um, I think I'll be, I'll be set for a while there. We do at least have, I say some anchor that, that, that we can appeal to. We can appeal to the fathers and that's what I've done with my PhD. Right. Well, that's the thing that we've all kind of on the outside looking in have thought, well, those guys are in touch with the patristics. So, you know, <laughs> we should, we should be, but we're going to be talking about some of those guys today. That's right. And, uh, now, just to kind of uh, kind of fill out again, you know, you're a member of the Academy of Philosophy and Letters, which is a, which is an academic uh, an association that appeals primarily to social conservative scholars, and that's where you and I met in right. And now, uh, you, I know you're also is it a deacon? Uh, archdeacon? Yeah, proto deacon, okay. senior deacon. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So uh, you you've got a role in in the clerisy, as they say, and then. Right. Um, you're writing uh, on the subject of, uh, uh, well, it's a subject that, well, uh, the title just caught my attention, Origins right. Revenge. So why don't you explain for us what Origins Revenge is all about? That's, your, that's your, that the title of your thesis. Well, what we're seeing now is uh, Originism coming back into vogue. Uh, origin himself has been partially, almost largely rehabilitated, at least in academic search, uh, circles. Not the church. The church hasn't taken back anything it said in the past. 
But in academic circles, he's all the rage. And most academics now sort of agree that, well, he was maybe more right than wrong or maybe wrongly condemned based upon what other people made of his teachings. Uh, although what I show is that uh, he did teach some things that are quite problematic on the issue of male and female in particular. And that was one of the things he was criticized for uh, centuries ago, um, is the whole idea of the body and the transition, the, the discontinuity between our original bodies and then our fallen bodies and then our future bodies was so great that nobody could really trust that we'd still be men and women in the resurrection. And that's something that over time just sort of, you know, it's there, it's, it's repeatedly brought up as an accusation against origin and originists. And then with Maximus Confessor, who's sort of the culmination of that tradition, you get him emphatically saying that, yeah, this is going to go away. And, uh, and now he's being used by some real sexual radicals, uh, not just in the Orthodox Church, but in the Roman Catholic Church and elsewhere, who are uh, using his theory in order to sort of uh, destroy the idea of the traditional binary of male and female, saying this is really not natural. We're supposed to transcend it anyway. So real danger. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'm familiar with Maximus Confessor primarily through his cosmology. I know there's a Neoplatonism at work within his thinking. Um, can you give us a little bit of background on Maximus, though? Now, I know he died, you know, well, I don't know if he died from, from this, but I know his tongue was taken out. Yes, he, yes, he did probably die from that. He died shortly thereafter, a few months, uh, having his tongue cut out because he, he refused to go along with the imperial policy which was uh, that we would uh, um, uh, go along with uh, the, 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 the monoergus. And, uh, they wouldn't, he was arguing that the two natures, two wills, um, uh, complete duality in a sense in Christ, divine and human. And, uh, and they were trying to angle imperially for a, a different policy, which would have sort of healed that first great schism um, over Chalcedon uh, with the, the, the monophysitism and the monophysites, the non-Chalcedonians, Chalcedon. And so for that, we honor him as a real saint. He, he is a champion of orthodoxy. His way of explaining it is still very valid. His distinction of logos and tropos, or in a sense, the way, that we're, uh, logos meaning our nature, that God intends, and then tropos being partly our response to that, the way, the mode in which we uh, express that nature. That's all very valid. Uh, and in fact, very useful even to what I argue. It's just that he, he in one work mainly, just ventures over into the speculation on male and female and just, just goes way overboard. And, and, and a lot of people, even the people that like what he says, admit, admit that he's basically still contradicting, contradicting scripture and also tradition, which has always held that, of course, God made man male and female, whereas Maximus basically takes the view that, no, 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 this is a result of the fall. Man only chooses to become male and female after he falls there. Very problematic. And I yeah. imagine, I imagine that, like you said, it, it's already been picked up by progressives to try to expand on those problematic areas. <clears throat> um, just a curious question. I, I read Maximus years ago, and it's been a long time since I've been in that. Um, two quick points. One, maybe for our audience who, who's not used to dealing with a lot of these distinctions of that the early theologians dealt with. I think this is a, such a healthy. Um, thing because understanding exactly how we understand Christ, Christ's two natures, and the significant we find oftentimes, I know from my world, the evangelical world, is we like to affirm the two natures, but we really have no clue of anything beyond we affirm their two natures. 
And right. we import a lot of the heresies that someone like Maximus worked very hard to protect against. But what would you say were, the, were, were maybe some of the things around him or within his own, his own thought or the things he was you know, engaged with that maybe tempted him in that direction? I mean, I, I guess it would be related to origin in some sense. But uh, you know, what, what was it? Was it a certain eschatological view he had? Or what, what was it? that, I mean, maybe the fall from a certain kind of uh, almost a, a spiritual nature that the embodied distinctions become a breaking away from it. Um, I'm, I'm not quite well, sure. Well, that's that's what the PhD is about. The, the first two chapters um, after literature review basically lay out the fact that within Christian tradition, we have two traditions. We have a Greek tradition, which is basically philosophical. Uh, and from that, you get this idea that the body is, of course, something we fall into, uh, mm. that we're, we're, of course, all really just souls. And, uh, and the body, of course, has all of these demands that, 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 that it, uh, lead it away even further from the, the life of the soul. Uh, and, and part of that is that marriage, the whole male and female thing, really the only purpose for that that they see at all is uh, procreation. Um, and the, the, the love that a man and a woman share for each other that has a limited value in Plato in the sense that it's a pale shadow of the love we should have for God. And a lot of Christians sort of make that argument too. But the emphasis on the pale shadow part, uh, that they really don't see a whole lot of purpose to it. Uh, and ultimately you get to where, well, you know, a, a philosopher really shouldn't marry. You shouldn't be bothered with those things because they, they lead you astray and whatnot. Mm. And, and that's a large part of early Christianity. It still is, actually. It does sort of inspire uh, the, by, by part of the movement towards monasticism, although that's a more complex phenomenon and, uh, and by no means limited to just that view. Um, but it, even in the old days, in the early centuries, uh, that view was, was problematic uh, for many early Christians, and it led to the early uh, heresy of encretism. Um, many of the Gnostics were also encretites, the idea that you shouldn't marry. In fact, the first, mm. first warning we get of this is St. Paul himself, where he says, some will come and they will forbid marriage, and they'll forbid eating and meat and whatnot. And sure enough, that's the case. And in some of the early apostolic fathers, we, the first thing we hear from them, from uh, Ignatius of Antioch and also Clement of Rome, is not an encouragement to forsake marriage, but rather a warning that if you do that, don't boast about it because that's an invitation to pride. And so it was early on a problem, continued to be a problem, although what I, what I argue in the PhD is that the early centuries, they, they did, in a sense, uh, resolve this to some degree, in a sense, coming up with both what we might call safe sex and safe asceticism, safe sex being marriage and all the limits that go with that, and safe asceticism being a form of monasticism that does not condemn marriage. And that's what the church settled into for a long time. Uh, now that, things are very, go, go ahead. No, that, 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 that's just so uh, pregnant with, with possibilities for, for, for memes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> safe asceticism, practice safe asceticism. <laughs> <Go ahead>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it, it's true that, you know, they have these repeated controversies. Um, the Jovinian controversy came up where asceticism was getting out of hand. The idea that they were having these young girls, they were persuading young girls in the West to, to swear off uh, getting married, to become virgin, to remain virgins forever. Uh, and Jovinian himself, who was a monk, he was a, an ascetic, a celibate. Nevertheless, he says there's something wrong 
when suddenly you, this teenage girl is going to, oftentimes following the, the, the fashion of the day, is going to do this great public thing of becoming a bride of Christ and never marrying, and she's suddenly going to outrank all of those widows and mothers who spent years of dedicated service as good Christians raising families and what. Uh, you know, they, they were, I, I would think, uh, getting rather hand, out of hand with it there. Uh, and that's where, even though Giovanni is condemned because he goes a little too far and says they're, they're equal, that, that he denies, in a sense, St. Paul's idea of celibacy is the better way. Uh, but nevertheless, you see where eventually the Encratites are condemned by St. Arrhenius, Leon, and also Clement of Alexandria, and that becomes the standard condemnation, which is in the canons, condemnations of the condemnation of marriage. So, yeah, and it wasn't a problem for a long time. You know, we, we had both tendencies for a long while, uh, and now it's, it's coming up again, but not quite in the same way, and uh, now we have to respond differently. Well, this whole this whole matter of it coming up in a different way, I think, is something maybe we can you know address at some point in the show. But I, I want to kind of get into you know the the heart of what you bring forward, particularly from the Hebrew, to undergird the legitimacy of the two sexes and you know marriage and so forth. So you say you've got the problem coming from the Greeks, this philosophical thread, right? Then you have, and as I was looking at your abstract, you have the Hebraic thread. Can you can you talk a little more about that? Well, you know, whereas the Greeks talk a lot about body and soul, the the Hebrews talk about men and women. Basically, that tells they tell stories of men and women. Um, and when they, and of course, the first mention of male and female is when when God comes around to making man as male and female. There's no mention of male and female before that. And of course, he, in the same breath of speaking of making man an image of God, he says making man male and female. And of course, the Christians were all very careful about making too much of that because they didn't quite know how they could say that male and female really related to the image of God. What I do is show how, well, yeah, you can do that. And then part of that's based upon what early Christians have said. But all throughout the Old Testament, you have this story, which is basically a story of relations, uh, relations between men and women between the patriarchs and their wives, um, uh, all, all these other men and women acting together. And then, of course, ultimately between the people of Israel and God. And that's a relation there. Right. So the whole Old Testament is, is not this focus on ontology as to what we are, but uh, a focus set on this, this relation of um, uh, how we behave towards another. And, and that's, in a sense, what it's really all about. And, and that's more of what many of the early fathers point to when they talk about the image of God, that it's a matter of what we do rather than simply what we are. Whereas the Greek tradition will, will try to make it a matter of ontology and saying it's intellect, it's rationality, it's autonomy, it's what you are. Whereas the Hebrew view, its story is all about um, this, this relation of rational beings relating to one another in different ways and not just this idea of being rational. A um, couple of uh, thoughts here. First of all, I've run into a couple, I think this is a unlike, undoubtedly a distinct minority, but I've run into some Jewish thought that discusses uh, the differentiation of the sexes, and they said that originally God created us uh, androgynously and, and separated the sexes later. Um, so how does that 
it, it, I think that's a decided minority view, but I'm not an expert on it. But I have run into oh, yeah. it. So. That's, that's a later rabbinic tradition, and it does come up. And that's as a result of Greek influence also. Right. Okay. Things sneak in there. Um, generally, though, the rabbinic tradition will be much more focused on marriage because of that idea of that fleshly inheritance. You know, they're, they're very keen on producing, um, uh, having fleshly progeny. And so it would be a tremendous focus on marrying, having, ch having children. But one thing I argue in the book is that one difference between the Christian tradition and the Hebrew tradition is that uh, whereas for in, in among the Hebrews, the, the Jews before Christ, you had this focus on fleshly descent, on procreation, and that being the purpose of marriage. Among the Christians, you get less of, much less of an emphasis on that procreation, fleshly procreation, but much more of an emphasis on marriage itself as part of, as in a sense, resembling uh, life in Christ. Uh, of course, you have the analogy that St. Paul gives us of the the Christ in the church. Then you also have 1 Corinthians 11, where St. Paul you know, draws an analogy there between the man and the woman and God and the and Christ, uh, saying that one is ahead of the other. And, uh, you know, and that's, and that's largely sort of the basis that I, um, uh, what my own thinking is built upon. And I use 1 Corinthians 11 to counterbalance the uh, Galatians 3.28, which is what the Greeks will, Greek fathers will all point to as, you know, neither male nor female in Christ. And, um, and so you, you have to look at that in context and say, well, what did they really mean? As a matter of fact, most of the fathers did not limit it or, uh, or, or did not absolutize that verse. They instead, instead uh, understood it more, more within context uh, and oftentimes pointed to um, ways in which uh, the image of God was seen in man as creator, as the source of something, um, uh, and also as the response to um, uh, the Eucharistic response. Basically, that's what I do is identify two modes of relation, one of which is archic and the other of which is Eucharistic. The archic from the Greek word arche, which means source or beginning, uh, uh, the, you know, the arche kaitelos, the beginning and end. Uh, the father is the beginning of the son. The son responds Eucharistically to that. Um, the father, to the, in response to the, the father's self-giving, you have the son's thanksgiving. And in fact, if you look at the Gospel of John, between the two, the father and the son, all the giving is done by the father and all the thanking is done by the son. Not once is it said that the father thanks the son and not once is it said the son gives anything to the father except thanks. And, and so that's sort of the easy way of sort of seeing how they relate. And I use that, then if, if that's how they relate, well, then when Christ says that they may be one, that they may be one as we are one, well, how are their father and son one? Well, they're one through this relationship of sourceness by the father and then this uh, thanksgiving by the son. And, and in a sense, it's a model for all human relationships, uh, at, at least uh, those that do resemble the Trinity, um, uh, uh, parents and children, uh, rulers and people, priests and people, uh, and of course, husbands and wives. They're all based in this idea of one from the other and the, and the loving givingness of the one and the humble thanking, uh, thankfulness of the other. We talked a little while back, uh, Brian, about, you know, sort of uh, developments in our time that are strangely reminiscent of this 
kind of Gnostic way of thinking about our bodies and about the fall into the body. In, the, in, other, in other words, as we've as we've kind of gone from a, a you know a, a pure spiritual state into this finite and corruptible flesh, um, something you know something has happened to us ontologically, and part of the 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 sort of the problem is we've been bifurcated into male and female. So this is all sort of uh, you know. Uh, oriented or sort of comes out of the the philosophical world of ancient Greece, classical Greece. Today, uh, it seems to me that the approach is coming from another direction entirely, and that perhaps the reason why people like Origen and some of the things that Maximus said are growing in popularity is because people are looking for ways to justify what they want to do. <laughs> it's more tendentious than actually sort of growing out of the scholarship. They're just sort of grasping for anything they can find that will encourage with their project or sort of justify it. But the thing that I see that, that, that seems to justify it is, is there's a kind of uh, disdain for what our bodies say. Uh, and historically within, say, natural law thinking, you know, the idea is that potentials uh, point to some kind of uh, expression or actualization. And then and when, when those potentials find their fulfillment or their actualization, then you, you've got happiness and flourishing and growth and, and so forth. One of those things, of course, being, you know, male and female bodies are designed to procreate. So procreation, and then if we look at things socially, the fact that we rely on our children in old age and, uh, and our children rely on us when they're small, and there are all these things that work together that uh, I think we've lost touch with in our world today. We really do have people who literally can't explain where eggs come from. I, I, can't, I, read, <laughs> I read an article <laughs> about where, where they actually did sort of man and street interviews and asked people, you know, where do eggs come from? And, and you know, a surprising number of people didn't know they came from chickens. <laughs> 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 that they were even biological at all, that they were manufactured in some plant or something. And their PhDs at Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> and we want to let people know that Brian didn't go to Harvard. He went to a school. Today. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, there's this, this, this need to self-define and our actualization is something that we create for ourselves. In other words, we discover our potentials and then we actualize them. And anybody who gets in the way of that, is, is oppressive. And, you know, I, we were just talking, Glenn and I were posting on Facebook about Tim Keller's book on marriage. Now, you're probably aware of who Tim Keller is, Brian, if you don't. Yes, oh, yeah. um, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, haven't read the book. I haven't read the book, but I do know who he is. Yes. Yeah, he wrote a book on marriage and children. It's, it's, the title is The Meaning of Marriage. No, no. Yeah, and, and how many times did he mention children in the book, Glenn? I think twice, incidentally. Oh, yeah. Really. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, now this is what we're dealing with. Now, this is a guy who is ministering to, you know what I'm talking about, you know, sort of uh, upper middle class, aspirant, 20s and right. 30-somethings in Manhattan with no right. kids. Yeah. And the kids for them are like uh, 
a chain on the neck to keep yeah. them from their dreams. Yeah. This is the world well, we live in. Yeah. I, you know, there, I, and, and obviously you can go wrong in that way. And, and, and the modern idea is to look at marriage as a sort of just partnership, you know, unlimited partnership. And it's for the benefit of just the husband and the you know, husband and the wife in there. Um, of course, the Christian view would assume that having children is part of that. That comes naturally from that relationship of a man and a wife. The problem, though, is that um, uh, what you often find, certainly find among the Greeks and often find among Greek fathers, is that uh, they emphasize the, the, the procreation or the importance of children too much. Uh, because within Christianity, you do actually have more meaning uh, associated to the, the husband and wife relationship than you'll find among the Greeks or even among the Hebrews. Um, St. Paul, when he talks about husbands and wives, he doesn't mention children. You know, he, he doesn't, he, he, he talks about, he makes that analogy to the Christ and the church. There's no mention of children there. Um, uh, when he talks about uh, in, uh, the better way, but then also everybody having their gift, he doesn't mention children there either. Doesn't list children as a reason for getting married. He's not concerned with procreation. The assumption, however, is that children will result from that, and the church has always, of course, insisted that uh, this is why, in, in a sense, there's been a lot of teaching against any kind of contraception, is that if God gives you those gifts, and that's what we find in the Old Testament, repeatedly, God is very involved in making sure that people uh, conceive. Um, but he assumed, God sort of assumes that, that husbands and wives are going to have relations anyway. And, and their relations are not limited to that, uh, uh, that, that purpose of having children. It's God who actually gives children to the couple. And so any couple that marries has to then be willing to accept those gifts as God gives them. But that doesn't mean that if they can't have children, that they can't be married, that there isn't value to marriage. In fact, there still is tremendous value to marriage. Um, it's just that you can't, of course, be materialistic and selfish about it and eliminate that, 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 that the burden or the, the, what really is the gift of children the way many people would want to do. So it's one way in which, of course, um, you know, things cut a little differently now, even though we're dealing with the same issues. Yes, people are, in a sense, they're so into the body, but they're still not comfortable with it. Uh, all the issue of transgenderism and uh, homosexuality, um, yes, we are attached to the body, but, but people are still struggling with the body, fighting against it in a sense and wanting to, to dictate to the body what, or, or use the body, want to, in a sense, avoid the, having the body dictate who, who the person is, uh, and at the same time using the body as sometimes an, as an excuse to do what they want, uh, as if they're fated to do that. We're very confused. And sometimes you see, a, you know, kind of a, a strange you know, I mean, we don't we don't often think about it. we think of people exercising for health, but I've seen, especially, almost an obsession with body sculpting, which is almost a reduplication of the old um, pagan Greek way yeah. of of trying to make immortal an immortal image, you know, concrete like the yeah. old sculpt sculpture. So the the relation of the body is. It is very strange for people still, and and that was one of the interesting things. Is one of the things, of course, the patristics had to work through in dealing with the doctrine of the incarnation. Is is of course the the Christian and Hebraic heritage of 
of the body and, and the goodness of creation. And they are working, hammering out those doctrines early on, and, and they do get it. You know, they go down trails and try to refine the language. They purify concepts from the Hellenic world and kind of reorder them in a way to express, express the faith. I think it's the way we have to do it. But it is interesting to see how much they wrestled with it when it came down to kind of how we live out our life. I mean, on yeah. in the doctrinal level, they were able to affirm holy. And even you think about the sacramental and Eucharistic and the strong kind of tangibility in orthodoxy, for example, um, and the, the way in which you can have a glorified creation, you know, a creation can, can be, a, be a means through which, you know, the glory of God, um, you know, radiates. Right. Um, and yet, on the other hand, there, there be this kind of tension that keeps showing up in the church over and over again, and, and then culture around it that continues to to be uh, perplexed by um kind of that place where the body fits into everything and um and, and yeah i mean you, you i mean i know and you think of the western western philosophical heritage i mean we've covered this on shows before but one of the key figures of course is descartes and the way in which he reconceives the human being as almost standing over against the, the extended aspects, the bodily, and that, that the real human is the kind of subject, um, the ghostly subject that, uh, that kind of, if, if it is properly um, using its ghostly side, is able to make the body and the created world submit to its rational and willful aims. And so you get instrumental science further down where, where the goal is not to trace out what true, truthful creaturely enactment is, but it is about making the body and the world conform to what is more sacred, that is our subjectivity or our desires or our thoughts about what the world should be doing for us, this utilitarianism. And I think the incarnation, the teaching of the incarnation and the church's rich um, understanding of the church as, as a means of grace, and from our tradition, we use that language, they go against that grain. And I think sometimes we haven't explored and we don't continue to explore how rich that truth is to counter these, these trends and these, these temptations. Anyway, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, the, you know, two things. Uh, um and some things I, I wish I could talk to you more about, but uh, just two comments playing off of that is, is that one of the problems is that when we, we think now of the Christian tradition, uh, you know, you, you, you end up just looking at texts. You end up at what some handful of Christians from long ago wrote. And oftentimes they're monastics and they have their issues and whatnot. And we don't take into consideration that there's an awful lot of life of the church other than that. Uh, that, that many more Christians made other choices and lived a life. And that's where it helps to have a tradition that does actually uh, convey a life generation to generation. And, and that tradition is, is, is many ways much more encouraging of living up to this nature, this, this or ordination really as male or female, because we are ordained to be men or women. And that's something that's not just a matter of nature or logos. It's also a matter of nurture. 
and tropos. You have to raise girls and boys to be girls and boys and then to be men and women. And, uh, and of course, you know, that's been the big issue lately. And you can't yeah. say that it's all a matter of one or the other. It's both. Yeah. It's living up to that ordination as male or female. And the thing about the other thing I wanted to mention is that when we talk about the incarnation is that Christ gives us, of course, the ideal. Um, but all of us are, are called and, and ultimately all of us are called to that ideal. But that doesn't mean that um, as it's often painted is that, well, you know, ideally we should always, uh, we should all be celibate. And, and so you have this, these two classes of people, which is often comes down to this idea. You have two classes of people the, in the monks, are uh, the, the holy holy ones as uh, they're called in the pseudo Dionysus, and then the, the people, you know, and the people marry and whatnot. And yet, all of us are called to celibate. In fact, all of us practice celibacy at different times in our life. We practice celibacy, celibacy before marriage. We uh, practice celibacy after the death of our spouse. We practice celibacy for, at various periods during our lifetime, even being married. Um, uh, we fast from um, relations just the way we fast from other things. If we're apart from our spouse for any reason, for any uh, military service or whatnot, we practice celibacy during those times. And so all of us have the calling to practice these ways, relate to the world, um, both celibately and in a marriage context at the same time, with the knowledge, of course, that ultimately we, we'll, we will all get to the point that this, that, that the, the marital relations will no longer count, but that doesn't mean that we cease to be men and women, really. Um, and that's that's part of the issue there as to what it will remain. And I, 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 I don't get into saying exactly, uh, I don't think anybody can say exactly what will be in the next life, but, uh, but I don't think there's much in the Christian tradition uh, outside, of course, Maximus and the Alexandrian tradition, the Origenian tradition, that would say we would cease to be men and women. Yeah. Are, you, are you familiar with uh, how C.S. Lewis kind of works with this uh, in the uh, Space Trilogy? Uh, have you read the Space Trilogy? Uh, I've not read them, but I, 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 I know of the Paralandra where he talks about uh, the fall. And, uh, so, you know, I've read a lot of C.S. Lewis, but I have to say I always preferred his, his apologetics over his, his fiction. <laughs> and maybe that's because the only fiction I've read, well, the, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, but I read those too late. Uh, when I was in the army, and I, you know, and then and then I read "Till We Have Faces," and I'm sorry, that just went right over my head. But, um, <laughs> uh, so, so I haven't read the others. I may, but uh, it, for me, the the I think what the problem he poses in Paralandra is very interesting with uh, the fall, and uh, and my in my explanation, of the fall is a big part of my argument too, because it's if you look at the first three chapters of Genesis, and in particular the way, the, the, the course, the creation of the woman from the man, and then the way the fall occurs, it's, it's person by person turning away from the source, their own source. You know, the, the woman turning away from the man from which she's made to talk, to relate to the, this creature that she's not really related to. And then the man turning away from his source, which is God, to follow the woman, basically, and uh, and 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 so the fall or, or happens as a sort of sequence of anarchies, and by anarchy I mean this denial of your archy, your source, um, and and that's that's fundamentally what they, all the confusion, all the rebellion against God is is an anarchy. The arch anarchist is Satan himself, who inspires the serpents, and it's all a matter of sorting 
instead of looking towards our source, he turns us away from it. Uh, and that's what people do now when they just reject completely anything that will govern them, their lives and tell them who they are. They won't, they don't want to have that. So. Yeah. Which leads to some really weird stuff because if, yeah. uh, there are only, you know, two options, <laughs> even though they, we've been told that there are 53 or something. I don't know how many, but, but there really, if there really are only two biological options, that means that in order to affirm my freedom, I have to reject my givenness. Mm. The fact that I've been given this body. So the only way I can sort of demonstrate kind of a Promethean freedom is to reject that. But uh, getting back to Paralander, the thing I was thinking about in Paralander was the fact that the, uh, his angelic beings are gendered. They have a male character uh, and a female character. So the, uh, the angel, and I can, I'm drawing a blank on the name that he gives angels in... Eldil. Yeah, the Eldil, that's right, the Eldil. So the, the Eldil for Venus is feminine. And the Eldil for Mars is masculine. So the so what 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 Lewis is playing with, of course, is the gods as we find them in, you know, Greek and Roman uh, mythology. But saying or playing with the concept that gender or sex uh, transcends uh, this sort of physical world and has a kind of reality apart from it now i'm not saying that we should go there and think about that but i but your 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 comment your your side as to what what place does sex have or gender have in uh the future our next life or the continuation of this life at glorified i think that's what i was getting at yeah yeah we don't know and 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 uh, and i don't like to speculate on things we don't know you know partly Partly because that's the orthodox, well, generally, except for the Alexandrians. Um, that's, <laughs> that is the orthodox way. There are a lot of things, unlike Roman Catholics, who deduce a lot. Um, <laughs> orthodox will typically leave a lot of things undefined. Well, but in, they're like Calvin in that way. Calvin didn't like speculation either. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, so I don't want to speculate, but, I mean, there are possibilities. Uh, however, when it comes to angels, I, I have to say is that, you know, angels never appear as women. In scripture, they always appear as men. They're never mistaken for women, except um, in 19th century architecture. Yes, art, exactly. Art, art. exactly. Yeah, Renaissance, Victorian art. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but 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 uh, and generally, the teaching is uh, the belief is is that they are genderless because they don't reproduce. And in fact, uh, Augustine argues that, or was it Anselm? Maybe both of them. Um, and then some uh, generally orthodox as well. Our, our understanding is this: is that they don't relate the way human beings do, and 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 they're not said to, to bear the image of God either, and which is another thing. In the Origenian, uh, you know, the hierarchy of Dionys- pseudo Dionysius. Uh, I mean, that that claim plainly is uh, doesn't even factor in. I mean, it's all rational beings. You just get this category rational beings at different levels. And, and that implies that, of course, the angels would also bear the image of God. Nothing special about human beings because they're just sort of like angels in training. Um, and that's that's sort of the tendency. Uh, and that, But that undermines um, uh, another part of the tradition which says that, no, we're, we're actually kind of special in that regard. We're, we're made with bodies. That's one thing. Uh, we're made male and female. 
you know, that's another thing. And we're made in the image of God, which is never said. Those three things are never really said about angels. Um, you know, they don't have material bodies. They're not male and they're not said to be male and female. Uh, and they're not said to be in the image of God. So. Well, there's some fascinating stuff here. Any questions or thoughts, Glenn, on any of this? Yeah. Well, you know, I did a, a short book on the image of God in which yeah. I explored 14 facets of it that I either found either in Scripture or among uh, various Christian writers and thinkers. Over yeah. the um, one of the things that I think is critical is that contextually in the ancient Near East, the idea of being an image of a God uh, referred primarily to the idea that you were a you were claiming to be that God's face, as it were, on earth. You were that God's official uh, representative, vicar, whatever term you want to use, on earth, and therefore that you had authority to rule in that God's name. And I think we see this in, in the parallelism, let us make man in our image and let him have dominion over the world. Uh, that that it, it taken the, taking the image of God that way is a functional designation right. to that parallelism. Yeah. And I think that's, that's another dynamic that's at work here. I, I would argue that the image of God, when you, when you parse out the verses in Genesis 1, the image of God is not found, not so much found equally in male and female, but it is, that's true, it is but it is mostly found in male and female together so that they can carry out the work of dominion, which is defined as filling the world and subduing it. That is to say, following what God had done in forming and filling the world, um, the reproductive unit then is part of the filling of it, and the family unit as a fundamental element building block within society is part of the forming the world, the subduing it, um, having dominion over it, and so on. So I would say that the image of God relates really directly, you know, on an exegetical level. It relates really directly to this issue of male, female, family, reproduction, all of those sorts of things. Um, now, I haven't studied the fathers on this, so I'm not entirely sure how the Orthodox would land on, on my exegesis here. But um, I think that that I think that that's an important component we need to keep in mind. And also one of the reasons why the angels are never described as the image of God, because they haven't been given this regency over the earth that we've been. Yeah. You know, no, I you, think... Uh, sorry. Go ahead, go ahead, Brian. But, you know, the, the fathers did just what uh, um, Glenn did. You know, they went to the scriptures and they, and they, they looked for the image of God. Uh, and, and, of course, they said, well, it, it, it involves dominion, you know, and, uh, and, and involves this creative act and you know, ruling over the world and what, producing other things, being, uh, you know, being like God and architects of creation. And so, and, and so you get you know, maybe 14 different ways that they define the image of God. It's only in the Origenian tradition that you get this exclusive focus on the image being rational or noetic or, you know, entirely spiritual, uh, which is really unnecessary. And you look at all the other things image could be there. Yeah, and heavy um, Greek influence too. Say again? And heavy Greek influence, Greek philosophical image. Um, yeah. Influence. Oh, yeah. I mean, it comes right out of the Greek tradition. It just identifies right. that the spiritual being, you know, uh, image of God is the spiritual being. It's rational, the category, the larger category of rational beings. Uh, and this is 
problem. One of the things I do too is, you know, they're working with Aristotle's system of categorization, which is typically, and this is part of the problem with Origenism in general, that, that whenever man tries to rationalize reality, you know, he can only get so far because reality is far more complex than we can understand and explain. Uh, and, 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 and they got a lot right, but then, you know, they couldn't explain male and female. Um, uh, but before I, I do want to say, though, is that the Orthodox Church itself and tradition has never settled, settled upon any definite uh, definition of image of God. There is that origin in tradition which says it's this, but then there are all these other fathers. And what I do in the last chapter of my book, I, I target this idea of the image of God specifically to show that this is an assumption that the originists make that's simply not necessary. It's not necessary, it's not founded in scripture because it makes you have to deny scripture. Um, but what I add to that, um, to, uh, and this is where I think what I've written uh, would add to what you've written, but fill it out a little more because, uh, because in the relation, in this archical relation of the man and the woman, from which children do come, just as creation of the world comes from the archical relation of the, the father and son, um, the son, you know, father being the source of all and the son being by whom all things were made. Um, it's, it's that archical relation itself. The fact that you have two persons, one from the other, one giving of itself as Paul directs the husband to give of his, of his self, give his own life, to, his, uh, to his, his wife, just as Christ gave his life for the church. And, and the wife's response is that Eucharistic service that, that we see in Christ towards the Father. So that in itself is ultimately, I said, probably the best explanation of the image of God. It's that personal relation of self-giving and thanksgiving um, that, that is the source of all life, is the basis of all life. And as, as I think about what Glenn described in terms of God's image, it's a functional understanding. And what I hear you saying, Brian, is this more of a social understanding? It's more, well, it's more social, but more natural. It, it's, it's fundamental to our very existence. The functional understanding would mean, well, when does it, get, it could go away? We would stop at some time having children. We do. I mean, that we believe that. We're not going to have children and fleshly children in heaven. Um, we're going to lose that role, um, but that doesn't mean that we will cease to be what we are or cease to bear the image of God. And, um, uh, and though, of course, yes, and the fathers would say, yes, that having dominion um, and, 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 and performing these functional duties are part of the image of God. That's sort of you know, what God does. Nevertheless, you don't want to reduce the image of God to the, this function of the effect that he has, that man has on the world. Because no, it's within man, you have this resemblance to God fundamental to what the, you, you, what the father and the son do. And that's where, of course, 1 Corinthians 11 is, is the basis of that, is, is that the man and the woman relate in the way the, 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 the father and the son relate. Um, yeah, a lot of that's, that, that's basically the argue, I, argument I get to in the dissertation. So Tom, you were going to say something. Yeah, and I think what you have is it, it's one of the things that Christianity has, kind of one of the tensions it has within it is the creation, redemption, fulfillment. And, and, and of course, a lot of the patristics and even the early church were wrestling with how in the world do we understand the goodness of creation and, and its, um, the significance of it in light of the fulfillment and then the first fruits of eschatology, what's coming. 
right? So we're, we're now a resurrection people. So things have, it's like uh, Oliver Donovan, uh, resurrection and moral order, that there is a vindication of creation and created purposes in Christ's bodily resurrection, right? It's not an agnostic resurrection. It's, it's a bodily resurrection. There's a continuity and fulfillment. And yet we are at a point where it's not an absolute fulfillment as the kingdom in its fullness, right? And, 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 the, and the, 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 the culmination of all things. Um, so what we have is that tension between, and the church had to wrestle through with this. What is, what is it like to live out the Christian life in a time in which, okay, Christ isn't coming back this week, <laughs> even though we're to expect him to come back. This, this tension of the immediate return of Christ, and yet Christ hasn't come back. And the early church really expected very quickly oftentimes. And then it had to say, okay, it hasn't happened. How do we therefore live? And so what you do is you see theologians start to take up, okay, the goodness of the created order, and, and the life you know, of the people of God, but complement it with what these things mean in light of the, their fulfillment in Christ and how we live as a, as a community, as the church, that holds these two things in place. So we have families, husband, wife, children, which are analogies of certain things in relation to God and God's final purposes, the church, the bride of Christ, all these things. So I always talk about, say, marriage marriage, you know, has both its creaturely functions, but they are also a sign of this more transcendent fulfillment, which is the Christ and the union of the church with Christ, all these things. So they don't, they don't lose that. But here in between this time, between Christ's resurrection and his return, we have still time in which you have both the church as a larger analogy Right. And husbands, wives, and children as a part of that analogy, which may give it sense. And so we live in a very unique tension in trying to make sense of that. And I think what happens is, is a lot of times with different trends, we kind of like to polarize them, either or, you know, or, okay, the higher spiritual calling is to put off children and only do this, or right. it's been imminentized in the West and now in order for you to flourish. I just read an article of Michelle Obama saying how she had to put her career on hold <laughs> in order to have children and go, you know, how horrific. Whereas for Christians, there shouldn't be, it shouldn't be that attention. Both are fully dignified in the work of redemption. Uh, maybe I, yeah, I'll leave it there. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, the thing that struck me about uh, what I saw that she said is that uh, she couldn't fulfill her aspirations by having yeah. children. And, and it's like, well, but, but you mean your children weren't aspirations? You didn't want to have them? <laughs> uh, it was very bizarre. Um, yeah. And it's true that the problem all along is that what I learned when I wrote a, a book about politics, uh, it explaining eight ways, you know, to run the country. That was actually the name of the book. But, but, but. This, it was just too complex for people. People cannot abide complexity. They, they have to have it simple. It's a, an either or, a black or white, or red or green, mm -hmm. or red or blue, or whatever. And, uh, and that's part of the problem. So if you tell them there's a better way, a lot of them are gonna, going to assume that, oh, well, gee, that's what we got to do. They're, everybody's got to do this. And it's like, no, that's, that's not, it's not that. Uh, again, reality is more complex. And as St. Paul says, we have our different gifts. 
And, uh, and in fact, the gift of celibacy is, I don't think, given to a whole lot of people. To, the, there are not a whole lot of people who can actually live easily that way, at least in the age in which it, you know, it matters. And, um, uh, and so um, it's, you, you have to, the church sort of muddled through in one way, allowing people different ways. And it did provide for monasticism for those who felt, had to get and felt called to it, which was a great benefit actually for the world because a lot of evangelism in those days was carried on by monastics. I recently took a tour with a few friends um, to uh, Anglo-Saxon churches in England uh, learning a lot about the evangelization of England. And um, what you see there is it was monks, monks who were sent out and evangelized England. And they could do that because, A, they weren't burdened with women and children, didn't have to, you know, worry about protecting them. They could risk their lives because they were, yeah. they were, as Christians, they weren't too concerned about losing their lives. Uh, and second, it was a, a great witness to pagans that, look, you, you know, you don't have to be driven by your passions. You don't have to. You can say no to this desire to have sex with somebody. And, and those two things were very powerful. I mean, it, it did sort of make uh, pagans focus on, believe that Christians had a power that they didn't have. So it can be very powerful, but it's not meant for everybody. Everybody's not meant to be a monk. Everybody is me meant to be, you know, a, a part of the priesthood. And of course, evangelize, be Christian in that way. But, but to not marry and go off, well, that's not expected of everybody. And I hope that what I've written and what we can all write in the future will help people understand a more balanced view of this that doesn't look like, uh, doesn't make it look like that those of us who marry are just sort of weak, which is typically the way we're seen. We're just seen as being, oh, you're weak, you couldn't do it. Um, you know, you're a second class citizen. It's like, no, that's, that's, that's not the way to look at it at all. Well, one of the things I think, you know, as you get in, as you expounded on this idea that, that for some reason we, we can't live with complexity. We've got to reduce everything to one thing. Yeah. Or, you know, I was reminded of Plato's dictum that what's honored in the country is practiced there. Uh, it's hard to honor two things. One thing seems to uh, take precedent, a precedence uh, over the other. Oh. Yeah. And, uh, like, you know, when I think about like Michelle Obama's statement, I think about many, say, intelligent and capable women who feel like uh, the sacrifice of their, you know, their career or maybe what they dream they can do for the world will be lost because of the fact that they have to invest themselves in their children. Right. You know, and, um, but, you know, is the you know is there a way for us? I don't know. I'm just raising this question. Is there a way for us to um, recognize uh, more than one thing as good? You, we, you know, this is what we've been talking about here for a while. We've been talking about the fact that the, the you know the monastic tradition in the West or you know in Christianity has brought a lot of great things into the world. Hospitals, universities, you know, we, you were talking about evangelism there, Brian. But, it, uh, but there's also uh, the household of faith is based on the analogy that's drawn from an actual household <laughs> where there's a father and there's a mother and there are children. 
you know, mother church, father, you know, the father in heaven, the son, the only begotten son who is the, you know, uh, primogenitor, you know, he's, he's going to inherit it all. And, you know, the only thing we get is through, through him, (laughs) all this stuff that's bound up with our faith, uh, is drawn from household talk. So even though we have all of this, you know, wonderful stuff that we can look to in, you know, the Bible and in the history of the church that come through, comes out of celibacy. Um, we wouldn't have any ability to talk about anything if it wasn't yeah. for the household, father, mother, children, all that stuff. That's the language of the faith. It's you wouldn't self. even have monks if it wasn't somewhere <laughs> down right. the line of house. Well, and you'd have this something from an old episode of ours, Shakers. Oh, yeah. 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 Right, right. Where are they today? Well, I actually think that was one of the weaknesses of the Byzantine Empire was that it was uh, sometimes for purely, uh, well, you know, you could escape military service by going to a monastery. Um, and by going to the monastery, it meant that you didn't replace people. And so the demographic weakness, uh, you know, I, uh, I believe, contributed to that, contributed. Although we do have to remember the Byzantine Empire was around for a thousand years, which is a pretty good record. But, um, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think but, the United States is in, is in danger of, of succumbing a lot quicker <laughs> well, yeah, <I'll> <laughs> to the powers of decadence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's something else I was going to say, and I can't remember what it was. Now. Oh, I'm sorry. I took it off. Anyway, way. no, no, no. It was, I, I think I lost track. when, I, when The Byzantine just occurred to me. I thought, oh. So I, have, I, I, have, I have a little thought because it's been running through my head the whole time. And, and I, again, it, it's probably too much to go into now, but maybe in just a, a sketch. <laughs> um, of course, the big challenge that even a lot of, I mean, I, I'm teaching students regularly. And, uh, and I, interestingly, at Gordon-Conwell, I get some of my finest students are taking the ethics class over Gordon-Conwell from Holy Cross and the Orthodox Seminary, and they love the class. <laughs> so I see that as a good, uh, a good connection there. But one of the things I'm noticing, even in the church, I mean, I've known it in academics for a long time, the, the reasons behind it, but addressing the issue that you were talking about, the second point, tropos, the way in which we cultivate male and female, and how people now make, they, they've, they've ripped that from the ontological and the relational, mm-hmm. and now have made it completely a sort of merely a, a social epiphenomena to where it is nothing more than a dynamic of a certain set of social arrangements. So to yeah, be a, a male style. And female. That's yeah, right. Style yeah, yeah, fashion picks. is probably right. fashion. And yeah. so what is it that, especially from, you know, your experience with the patristics and, and the, the tradition of the church, what was it that gave that a deeper grounding? Um, more, what, what is it, what, what allowed for a continuity between what it meant to be a female then and now, even yeah. if some of the fashions of, ex, of expressing that change? Right. Well, that's one of the reasons that um, one of the reasons I did the dissertation on this was to bring out all of this old teaching, these old practices, these canons, uh, this yeah. preaching that was uh, very specific as, as to how men and women are to relate. And, and you know, and clearly, of course, admitting the commonality between male and female, what men and women share, but also uh, recognizing that they're given different roles. They're, they're different ordinations. You're ordained to be this, you're ordained to be that. 
Uh, and a lot of these teachings I came upon when I did that earlier book I mentioned, the scan, called The Scandal of Gender, which is a survey of early Christian teaching. Uh, and, and there you find it's just uh, very distinct. I mean, it's just uh, assumed. And this also you don't find among the Greeks. You find it culturally and as a matter of custom, but no Greek philosophy in terms of, very little Greek philosophy in terms of what men do and what women do. Aristotle does that, Xenophon. Uh, and, and so, you know, some of it does get down into later thinkers, but, uh, but the Platonist tradition, the Pythagorean tradition, all the rest of them, or they don't pay any attention to that. But in hmm. the Christian tradition, you have clear guidance, a lot of it right from the Old Testament or from the New Testament, you know, early Christians as to what their practices were. And one of them is covering of the heads. First Corinthians 11 again, women hmm. are to pray covering their heads. So even in prayer, we mark this distinction between men and women. It's not just public prayer for them then. Uh, nowadays, it pretty much is just public prayer if they do it at all. But uh, in the old days, as I know, every time a woman prayed, she covered her head. And it came to be, since you were to pray unceasingly, they just covered their head at all times. Um, that was the custom. And there was an elaborate ceremony uh, in, the, in the early Byzantine period for the, the covering of the head of a, a, a woman when she, well, a girl when she became a woman. When she reached that point of maturity, then then there were there were prayers said where she would then don the the veil and and wear it because that's the order that she was raised into. Uh, they were separated in church. You had the the men on one side, the women on the other. Everybody had their place. You know, the young women were in one place, the ones with children were in one place. Uh, so there was an idea, definitely an idea of order there. And of course, dress. Um, uh, there were canons, and they come out right out of the, based on Deuteronomy 22.5. There, there, there were repeated canons that, that it's wrong for women to wear what men wear and wrong for men to wear what women wear. Uh, hmm. You had to mark the distinction. You had to live as either a man or a woman. You know, regardless of whom you felt attracted to, this was what you were to do, and you were to practice that. Keep company, men with men, and that's how you learn. Uh, how to be a man, keep company women with women and they, and they learn to be women in that way. And if that were done more, a lot of homosexuality wouldn't appear because a lot of homosexuality is based on the alienization of one person from his own gender. He doesn't get that, that fatherly schooling or nurturing in an all, in a male environment. He doesn't get from peers. He doesn't get from superiors. And so he want, he, he lacks that and then needs to feel, needs to make it up by, trying to be intimate with someone, but often, unfortunately, in the wrong way. Uh, so there were a lot, of, and of course, that was condemned entirely. I mean, it's just out of question that, that homosexuality was just uh, considered, well, St. John Chrysostom says, worse than death, uh, because mm -hmm. worse than murder, because murder kills the body, whereas sodomy killed the soul and the body. But, but anyway, that, a lot of customs, uh, it, was, it was the way they, um, uh, you, you know, clearly was the foundation of their social life uh, and very essential. Um, you know, Glenn was saying earlier um, um, uh, about this, about how the, the story is told and this is how essential this is, the family life is to, to just our existence. And, and the whole story of salvation can't be told without a mother, you know, to bear Christ, the incarnation. And without, without the father and the son, it's all couched in this term of male and female. You just can't deal, do away with it and come up with the history of human existence, with the whole economy of God's love, creation, and love for us and nurturing others. Well, you it's know, all based on that difference.
Yeah, the the progressives, <laughs> the progressives are giving it a good try. <laughs> you know, United Church of Christ people and all those guys. Now, <clears throat> well, I used to be Church of Christ. Yeah. <laughs> not but, united, not united. But <laughs> the other one. So as we kind of wrap things up, it, it occurred to me, you know, as you were describing this, uh, some of the practices that that uh, have been, you know, common throughout the history of the church, both in East and West, for example, head coverings and so forth. I, when I was in Boston, uh, I was uh, uh, working in a very uh, multicultural church. I mean, this church was like the image of what all the progressives say you should, you know, aspire for. This was a very conservative church. We had five congregations. We had an Indian congregation, a Korean congregation, a Chinese congregation, uh, Portuguese, and and uh, Indian. And I remember, you know, with, with the non-Western uh, congregations, you'd walk in and the men and the women would be on op- opposite sides of the church. They would be separated, and it would be eldest to youngest. So the children were in the front row. The, the youngest <laughs> children were in the front row. So you kind of graduated back, <laughs> and, e- and each row kind of policed the row in front of it. <laughs> it works. It works. <laughs> That's right. So it was it was segmented in every in politically incorrect way, and yet here we were. This ideal church, you know, from the standpoint of, uh, you know, multicultural ideology. And I remember one time uh, my wife and I were in church and my wife spoke to a, a, a West Indian woman. I think she was, if I remember correctly, I think she was from uh, Trinidad. And uh, she asked her, why don't you sit with your husband in church? You know, because my wife being an American, you know, this is something that you do. You know, you sit with your right. husband in church and hold hands and it's nice. You know? <laughs> and uh, my and, and the woman, her name was Bernice, Bernice Warwick. Uh, she said to him, said to my wife, I have to sleep with him. Do you want me to sleep <laughs> in <the> church? <laughs> it was like, I, I finally get to get away from a man and enjoy female company in church. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, and that, anyway, do you have anything else you want to say? We're we're kind of getting to the point where we need to wrap things up. I I, I think we've covered a lot, and I really enjoyed it. It's been great talking to y'all. Well, it's great to have you, Brian. Anything you want to say, Tom, as we wrap up? No, this is this has been great. I hope you come back. There's probably a lot of things we can talk about. I mean, just just in theology, the patristics, but this topic too. I think we can explore much. But thanks, thanks for sharing with us and we really do hope you'll uh, come back and join us great Thanks. how about glenn anything you want to say glenn as we close oh i've got way too much so we'll just call it a day here <laughs> <laughs> I, I would love to get into more of a discussion of the trinity and the image of god and the whole host of other related issues so yeah. hopefully we'll be able to do this <laughs> next again. time yeah, you know, you know, there are some odd ways in which the Reformed tradition and the Orthodox tradition sort of, you know, sort of are, are in agreement. Obviously, there are ways in which they're not. And uh, but it would be fun to kind of talk about some of these things, Glenn. You know, to get to have mm-hmm. Brian back and explore yeah. particularly the nature of the Trinity and, and these different things. But anyway, uh, thanks, Brian, for being with us. It's been a lot of fun. And congrats yeah. on so, your uh, doctorate. Thank yeah, you. that's right. Yes. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Now, now, as we wrap up, I just want to say something to our listening audience. We have about 10,000 people who listen to the show each week. That's what we're told. And we believe them. <laughs> the people who tell us, they actually look at the numbers. 
and uh, one of the things that we've learned over the past year as we've conducted the show is that there are a lot of people out there who would like us to to go into more depth, provide some you know, uh, recommended reading, just different things. And so we've wondered how, how best to do that. And we've, we've, we think that one of the things we need is we need our own webpage. And we need to sort of up our game a bit. Now, in order to do that, we're going to need to have some funds. And so we're going to do another, uh, you know, sort of fundraising drive like we did when we first started the show. We did something when we first got going. We were able to raise about seven, eight hundred dollars. And that was a, that was able, you know, through those gifts, we were able to purchase some recording equipment and some microphones and stuff like that. Now we want to do this again in order to launch a website and hire someone to do all the work that needs to be done uh, to, to sort of manage the site. And then we want to get some, some new microphones so that someday when we are actually physically together again, I know it's hard to believe that that day will come, but there will be a day when we're back in the pub and uh, it'd be nice to have better microphones. So we've uh, started a, an Indiegogo campaign. Indiegogo is a competitor to Kickstarter, but it's the same kind of thing. And we're going to be looking to raise $4,000. And we've got some merch. We've got some beer glasses. We've got some T-shirts with great slogans. <laughs> we got all the stuff that uh, hopefully people would like to have uh, who follow the show. And we, we get emails and texts every day. I mean, I'm all not over the world from Australia. All the world. Cheers yeah. to our Australia friends, by the way. <laughs> That's right. That's right. From all over the world. And we're just astounded because we, we're, we're like completely illiterate technologically and we do zero promotion. <laughs> and so, and then we've been able to see this great response. So we're very, very happy but, uh, for that. But uh, if you would like to help out with the Indiegogo campaign, there will be uh, a launch of that pretty soon. It hasn't happened yet. We want you to keep an eye open for that. Another thing is that we now have a uh, Theology Pugcast YouTube channel. And the YouTube channel is taking our YouTube, our, our Zoom videos and uh, putting them on YouTube. And we just have like maybe 50 people, you know, who signed up for that now. It just, I, we just started last week. But um, if you'd like to see us, if you've, if you've only heard us and wonder, what does Tom Price look like? <laughs> <laughs> and Passions what does Lynn Sunshine's <laughs> background look like this week? <laughs> you can you can tune into the uh, YouTube channel. Just look up Theology Podcast, and you can even go to our, our Facebook web page, our Facebook page where we post them, and uh, you can see us there. But anyway, I just wanted you to know about those things before we wrap up. That's it for now, and we appreciate uh, the fact that you tune in every week to download another episode of the Theology Podcast. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.